Thank you, men. This is the first time in a long time there hasn't been a woman on stage, uh, which is kind of weird, but you guys did all right. <laughs> Just kidding. You guys are awesome. Um, welcome. Uh, again, thanks for being here. This is uh, Hope Community Church Lower Town. We're about six months into this, so this is April. I'm not going to be giving any jokes or anything like that. Uh, you know, it's April Fool's. Um, I was tempted. I was very tempted this morning to go to a local local bakery. I don't know where I saw this, but go to a local bakery and just get a couple uh, boxes of empty of empty boxes of donuts, and then just email the staff and put it in the break room and say Happy Easter, you know. And then they open it. It just says April Fools. And I was really tempted to do that. I said, Man, that's just mean. Um, so I, I didn't do that. Um, so I'm a better person for it, I think. Um, anyways. We, we're taking a break from Exodus. We've been going through the book of Exodus. I think we're about uh, 10 or 11 weeks in uh, in Exodus right now. And so we're taking a break from that to, to kind of have a special Easter sermon. And so uh, I'm excited about this. And I've been in you know, full-time ministry for, um, what would it be now, 10 years. Uh, and this is the first time I've actually had the chance to preach uh, an Easter sermon, right? I finally graduated to like big boy preacher's school uh, opportunities because, you know, normally when you're, when you're a little man on the totem pole, you know, you get to preach like July 4th weekend, um, you get to preach, um, you know, Christmas Eve, not Christmas Eve, uh, New Year's Eve, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, you, get to, you, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to take the Sunday off. Why don't you go up there and, and give it a shot? Um, and so this is fun, right? I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. At the same time, uh, I've got to, I'm going to try to calm myself down because this has been a crazy week for me. On, on Tuesday, my jaw was hurting. If you know, um, uh, back in January, I had my wisdom teeth removed, and something was bugging me. It's been a few months, and, and, uh, and please me, if, if, if this makes you queasy, uh, we're going to be talking about blood a lot today, so... Um, You'll, well, you'll get over it. So I, I, my jaw was hurting me, and so I called the, the oral surgeon, and I said, hey, um, something's going on. I'm not sure what's going on. And, and they said, well, we can give you some uh, antibiotics, but you need to come in tomorrow. We'd love to take a look at it. And so I, I just said, well, don't, I don't want to mess with it tonight. I'll come and see you tomorrow. So I went some and um, basically said, we're gonna, it shouldn't be hurting you. We're going to do some exploratory uh, you know, looking around, whatever that means. Uh, in my in my jawbone, and then he said, and then but your 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 jawbone is actually sticking out through your gums. It shouldn't be doing that. So I could actually like touch my jaw, which doesn't feel very good either, um, and it hurts to talk, that kind of thing. And so they uh, basically did that. He numbed me up, and then he said, you know, for your uh, for your jawbone, we're just going to go in there. We're just going to pluck pluck out that bone, right? Because he thought it was just some kind of piece of bone or tooth that was making its way out, uh, and that was not the case. It was actually my jaw. Uh, making its way out. And so a metal file uh, later um, got that in place. And so it was, it was kind of ironic because Pastor Kaur, um, who uh, preached this morning downtown, he, he texted me a picture of a large um, Jeep XJ, an old Jeep Cherokee like I have. He was down in Florida on vacation. He said, hey, thinking of you in Florida. And then I snapped a picture of me, uh, a mess with, you know, laughing gas on, which is probably why I even took the picture in the first place. And I, and I snapped the picture and I said, hey, I'm thinking of you too. You might need to preach <laughs> Sunday night at Lower Town. Um, but uh, and I'm not on drugs right now, I promise. I'm, I'm, I'm clear-headed uh, as I normally am. And uh, so anyways, I'm going to do my best to not get amped up because I don't want to cause any harm back there. Um, and not to, I don't want to smile too big. So anyways, that was that. So I remember as soon as the doctor said, though, um, he said, I'm just going to pluck it out. You know, and then after the surgery, you know, like an hour and a half later, and he finally got done, and I said, um, 
I said, quote of the day, I'm just going to pluck it out. <laughs> and he, he didn't think that was very funny, and he explained why he thought he was going to pluck it out. I said, hey, man, I'm just sorry, I'm just messing around with you. Um, we have this phrase at Hope that matter and manner matter, right, uh, that we say that what we say is really important. The content of what we're saying is really important, but how we say it and how we deliver it is also equally vitally important. And so for him, he was really good on the manner. Well, I'm just going to go in there and pluck it out, right? But no, you, you neglected to teach me the truth of what you were actually going to do. Um, and some doctors have that the other way around. In high school, uh, I'm just all my, all my surgeries, I wasn't planning on going here, but I'm going here anyways. I, I've, I've had two collapsed lungs. It's called a spontaneous pneumothorax, um, where one of them I literally woke up and my lung was collapsing while I was breathing, so, or when I was sleeping. So anyways, the first time it happened, I was at school, I was at lunch, and I get into the doctor's office, they take an x-ray, it's hard to breathe, and I'm passing in and out, and I don't know what's going on, and he says, the doctor looks at me, right, so matter, he, right, he, he's thinking this is bad if this thing happens, he's a doctor, he's seen this before, so his uh, manner was not very good, but he gave me a lot of matter. He said, uh, what happened to you is the worst thing that we could have we could expected to happen. And I'm like, so I'm dead, right? So I'm basically dead. And then I said, so what does that mean? And he said, well, your lung popped. Okay, so I am dead, right? Because so, that's not supposed to happen. Uh, so he was really good with the matter, not the manner. Hopefully tonight uh, we'll, we'll put this right in the middle. Okay, I bring this up for a reason, actually, sorry. Um, every time I'm at the dentist, I've got bad teeth. I am always at the dentist, always the dentist. And, and I sit there and I'm gripping the armrest. And I'm, and I'm quoting scripture to myself about how about Jesus has suffered, right, that he knows what it's like to be human. And every time I've got some drill in my face, I'm like, Jesus, you do not know what this is like. These were not invented when you had to suffer, right? Uh, he probably just had to suffer with rotten teeth. Um, and I have not had to do that. But, it's, but I joke in that sense that we, I actually serve a God, right? I, I love the fact that I serve a God that knows what it's like to suffer that we serve a God, uh, and the man God, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, who suffered and bled and died, that he's not untouchable in the sense that he actually sees and he hears and he knows. And so when we get to the book of Exodus, which we've been doing, that, and the Israelites are cry, crying out because they're in slavery, and whatever the issue is that you're going through and the suffering, Jesus and the God of the universe can actually look at you and say, yeah, I, I, see, I see that, I hear that, I know what you're going through. And maybe in this lifetime, it's not going to be made right. But I guarantee you and I promise you, it will be made right. I'm, I'm thankful that we serve, serve a God like that. So today we're going to be going through um, uh, Easter's story. Um, and we're going to look at Jesus being risen from the dead. But I kind of wanted to take a, a different approach uh, from this. And, and so we're going to be looking at kind of the, the story of the history of redemption. And so when we look at the Bible, there's kind of four major themes that we see throughout this. I know I've shared this here before, but you have creation, fall, rescue, and restoration. And, and there's kind of this crimson thread of redemption that follows itself all the way through Scripture, right? From Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22. It's all there. And it perfectly follows itself. And, that, and that, to me, as, as someone who can step back from Scripture... Um, put on my skeptic glasses and say, okay, you're telling me over 40 different authors over thousands of years were able to perfectly line up this history of redemption. That's not humanly possible. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work the way as beautifully as, as it does. And so we're going we're gonna to take this journey through the history of redemption. So that's, that's where we're at. So the first point, looking at creation. 
And if you've been here before at Lower Town, you've heard me say this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it again, that there is harmony. In the, in the beginning, when God creates everything, um, that there is harmony. And so we have to start there. There is a God of this universe. And whatever at this point you think of him, just know that he is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's in control, he knows exactly what's going to happen, and he creates us anyways. And so he creates human beings, and there's perfect harmony. And oh, all the artwork I'm going to show tonight is from a friend of mine. Um, his name is Chris Coley. Um, I have some of his artwork in my office. And oh, there's one picture that's not his, but I'll, I'll point out which one it's not. Not that it matters. I'm not, he's not even my friend. He's a buddy. I haven't talked to him in 10 years. So he's just like a, he's a Facebook. We like some stuff. That's, that's our friendship. Um, but I love his artwork. Anyways, he, uh, he, this is you know, the garden. The harmony that we have is not just between man and, and woman and man and man, but it's between God and man. There's harmony. God walks in the cool of the day with his, with his creation, with those individuals that are made in his image, the way that we were meant to be uh, created and lived and reflect who he is and live eternally, that we weren't created to die and to suffer and go through pain the way that we do, and even tooth pain, right? That wasn't part of the plan, right? Thanks, Adam and Eve. There's harmony there between God and man. There's also harmony between uh, man and woman, and between man and man. There's no wars. There's no, that's not the way it was created to be. And that it says that they were naked and unashamed, that they were just perfectly in tune with one another. And not just a physical uh, nakedness, but, but an emotional nakedness. Of just being able to say what I want to say, when I want to say it, without anything, any of the emotion and baggage that comes with me being honest. And, and then there's also harmony between mankind and creation. That there are not these destructive things that happen. There are not earthquakes and, and all these different things and famines and cancers and these things. There's harmony there. That was the way it was created. And I know that sometimes it sounds too good to be true. Or you think, man, that would be really cool, right? I, I wish we had a chance to be there. Well, what was we're going to see when we get to the end, the restoration, God's going to make all things new. And he's going to make it the way it always was meant to be. But how do we get there? And kind of the theme, especially the book of Romans, and the theme of Scripture is not... How is, how is God, um, how is he going to punish these people? Or how is he going to, right? The, the, the question is, especially when you get to Romans, is how is it possible that God can save anybody? It's, that doesn't make it, like they've sinned. They're sinners. They've committed high treason against the creator of the universe. How, how can he even let any of them in? How is that possible? And hopefully today we'll, we'll look at that. But we don't stay in the garden very long. By the time we get to chapter 3, we see the fall come into place and, and Eve eats of the forbidden fruit, and the serpent comes and tempts and says, did God really say that? You can be like God. All you have to do is disobey and eat that fruit. And so we get to the fall. And right off the bat, in the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, we have this promise that is made. And it's called the Proto-Evangelium. Uh, proto just meaning first uh, evangelium, uh, evangelism, so the first evangelism, the first time the gospel is shared in Scripture. And it comes all the way from Genesis 3.15. This is a picture I've got in my office. It was kind of kind of dark, but the, the imagery on the picture there is the skull, and you have the serpent making its way through the skull. The skull where Jesus is crucified, and the hill he's crucified is called Golgotha, or the place of the skull. And so Christ is going up. But this verse here, it says, I will put enmity. Enemy, you're going to be an enemy with the serpent. This is God cursing the serpent after, after the fall. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Okay, so right there at that point, this is a, a broad general of all offspring. All offspring, there's going to be enmity. There's going to be issues here going on between serpent and the devil and sin and every human being who lives. But then he goes then to the singular. And he says, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
All right, so you serpent, you devil, you old snake, you're, you, you are going to cause some harm. You're going to cause some pain to this deliverer. But he's going to crush your head. Right, so that's the imagery there of the heel of Jesus on the cross, crushing the head of the snake on Golgotha. That is the proto-evangelium. If I ever got a tattoo, I'd get something like that. But that skull is just a little, I've got to figure that out. We have the fall, and then we have the sacrifice that is made. So right after that, right, right after you've got, you've got Genesis and you've got Exodus. We've been going through Exodus, and as soon as we get there, and we're going to be here in a couple weeks, we look at Passover and the significance of what happens at Passover, and, and that's the 10th plague. And so right now we're, we're uh, just at past the first three plagues, so this next week will be um, four, five, and six of the plagues. So when we get to 10, though, that's what this is about. We're going to be talking about the 10th plague in a couple weeks in Exodus, but it's about Passover. We're going to spend a lot more time about this, but this is what is told. And if you were at our Good Friday service uh, downtown, we, we read this as well. It says, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Or you're going to take a, a little lamb, an unblemished animal, and you're going to kill it. You're going to take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop is just a, a branch. And you're going to dip it into the blood of the basin, and you're going to put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. And so what happens at Passover, this is not a picture that my buddy, uh, my Facebook buddy drew. Um, this is, this is a, I don't know, whatever, this is a picture we use for Good Friday. And this is the, the, an image that's, that's an artist's rendition of the death angel coming by and seeing the blood painted on the doorpost and on the door mantle. Right? That's, it's gory. It doesn't make any sense. You're telling me that in order to save my son or my firstborn, I've got to go kill an animal, that a sacrifice must be made, and I've got to shed this blood, I've got to pour this blood. It just seems weird. Why does blood have to be shed to move on, to be able to pass over me? And, and, and we'll see why once we get to the New Testament. The New Testament really helps us understand some of the things that are going on in the Old. But right off the bat, shedding of blood, that happens to help and to redeem and to save people. And this keeps going, that we see sacrifices constantly being made. So in Leviticus chapter 1, so we're in Exodus, it goes Genesis, Exodus, and then we get to Leviticus. And Leviticus is a book dedicated uh, to the Levites, who are the priests of the Israelites. So an entire book with all these rules and rituals uh, saying, you, if you want to be my people, I want you to demonstrate who I am to the nations around you, and this is how you're going to do it. And so Leviticus chapter 1, right off the bat, says Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting or the tabernacle that they made and they set up and they carried around with them all over the wilderness as they wandered around. Uh, and God said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone amongst you brings an offering to Yahweh, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering, there's a, there's a bunch of different kinds of burnt or offerings. I'm not going to get into all that stuff, but Right off the bat, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting uh, so that it will be acceptable to Yahweh. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. All right, so a sacrifice is going to happen. Blood is going to be spilt to atone for your sins. And you are to slaughter the young bull before Yahweh, and then Aaron's sons and priests shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar and the entrance of the tent of meeting. There's blood everywhere in the Old Testament. 
All right, and you've got these altars and, the, and, the, and these sacrifices being burnt. I mean, day and night, when we get to Hebrews, talks about this, just day and night that the priests are going to stand here, they're going to perform these duties, and it's just, there's just blood. That blood is being spent of all these animals in order to look over the sins of the Israelites, but something better is going to come. Another aspect in Leviticus, um, uh, sorry, this is not chapter 1, I believe it's chapter 16. I, I don't think I put the right, I think this is Leviticus 16. Uh, verse 10 says, but the, but the goat chosen by Lot as a scapegoat. So they would have two goats that would come up for um, a, a sacrifice for atonement, to atone for your sins. They would take these two goats and they would roll a dice, right? Or the goats would do rock, paper, scissors together. And whoever lost um, would, would die, okay? <laughs> would, would get their, their throat slit. And the one that, that it fell on or that, that it was a good thing that this is what would happen. So the goat that was chosen by Lot as the scapegoat, we, we use this phrase all the time, maybe not all the time, it's not a word I use every day, but we use the phrase scapegoat. Oh, this guy's a scapegoat or she's a scapegoat for this community or whatever's going on. This scapegoat shall be presented alive before Yahweh and used uh, for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So they would symbolically uh, put their hands on the goat, on the head of this goat, and they would, as if... The sins were being put into this goat, symbolically of, of all of Israel's sins were being put in this goat, and they would send it out into the wilderness. And at the same time, the other goat is going to be slaughtered, right? Because blood needs to be spilt to forgive sins. And yet this goat is being sent out into the wilderness. Why? Well, it's a phrase that we don't use a whole lot, but, but the, the, the big theological phrase for it is expiation. Right? That, that my sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. All right, and so in this moment, they're saying the sin is no longer in the camp. The sin has been exiled. The sin is being put outside of the camp, and we are now in good standing and community with God. Then we get to the rescue. So we see that there's the promise made all the way in Genesis chapter 3, but then we get to this promise kept. And there's a lot of things that I could have read here that we could say about this that uh, I just am, I don't have time to do. Um, I guess we do this every Sunday. <laughs> I talk about Jesus every Sunday. But uh, I wanted to get here. I want to talk about this. And so I'm not going to go through necessarily the accounts of the crucifixion and what happened to Jesus during those times, but it was horrific and what he suffered and what he went through. But we get this, though. The promise is kept by Jesus that he then is the sacrifice, that he then, and that he is the only one who possibly can do this because he's fully God and fully man, right? That in order for sin to be forgiven, only God could do it. Only God could do it. So therefore, in Romans chapter 3, he becomes the, he is just as God, but also justifier. Because there's nothing I can do. If that's your, your way of thinking of this world or thinking about um, salvation or how am I going to get to heaven, is I've just got to do good things. I've got to be a nice person. I've got to be better than the person next to me. I've got I've to, right, it's kind of that, that, that thing of, you know, if you're in the woods, um, and a bear attacks you, what do you do? You just got to outrun the person next to you, right? It's, it's, that's not the case, right? Your good just doesn't outweigh your bad. It can't be done. We would always fall short. Only Jesus could do that. Only God could do that. And so he keeps his promise. And so I want to read through Hebrews chapter 9. I'll make some comments as we go here. Hebrews chapter 9, 11 through 22 says this. But when Christ came as high priest to the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not 
part of this creation. Okay, so he's going, all, he's going Old Testament here. Hebrews does that constantly in the entire book. Goes Old Testament. He's saying, okay, what, what's different here about Jesus? All right, he had to do it through tabernacle. Tabernacle just means dwelling among you. And, it's, and when Jesus comes and lives here, he literally tabernacles among us. He makes himself, makes this his home. So he comes as the high priest to offer something that's greater, more perfect than what was once, what is part of the Old Testament. He makes something new. It's not made with human hands. That is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter it by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. All right, now this, this imagery here, we talked about the, the most holy place in the tabernacle, there was uh, a holy place, and out there you would have the menorah, you'd have um, a, a table of incense right before uh, the, the, the um, uh, veil, and then an altar of showbread here, and they would perform an incense here, and only one day out of the year would the high priest, one day a year on the Day of Atonement, would he go in through the Holy of Holies, and he could only do that by shedding the blood of a goat, the Day of Atonement, and he'd shed this blood. And he's saying, Jesus does this. Jesus just goes right in, but he doesn't do it with the sacrifice of a goat. He's able to do it with his own blood because he's innocent. Verse 13. And the blood of goats and the bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanses our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. He's saying this is, this is far greater. This is why we don't kill goats and animals. We don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because Jesus was the sacrifice. He already did it. It's done. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from their sins committed under the first covenant. We are under law that we've sinned. We've fallen short of God's glory. And he says, you're forgiven. Your sins have been expiated as far as the east is from the west. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. All right, following it here? All right, this thing can't happen. A will can't take place when somebody's still alive. And that's why blood had to be shed even in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the first covenant. And when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And here's why. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But there is a payment that needs to be paid. Romans 3 says that the wages of my sin, that what I've earned, right, I go to work and I get a wage. The wage for me just being alive is death. The wages of my sin is death. I've earned that. And the only way that that can ever be forgiven is with blood. But it can't be my blood and it can't be your blood. It's got to be the blood of Jesus. It's got to be the blood of one who is, is perfect and has been 
perfect. And so this is why Jesus had to die on the cross. This is why Jesus had to shed his blood for you. But then we see the restoration, and we see the restoration of, and the, uh, of the resurrection. All right, so now it's Easter. Okay, we'll get a little, a little less blood talk, all right, from now on. All right, we're gonna get to resurrection. Now, this is Easter, right? This is Jesus coming back to life, that the Spirit and himself, that he comes back to life? Right, is that, is that, is that true? Thousands of years ago that a guy in the Middle East rose from the dead. Yeah, yeah, that's really important. Because if it's true, it changes everything. And if it's not true, we're wasting our time. Because if he didn't raise from the dead, then he can't pay for my sins, and he can't pay for yours. It's got to be true. So I'm going to read the account. I'm going to read one that maybe isn't normally traditionally read. I just thought it was a little bit different, um, at least for me. And so um, we're going to read from Luke chapter 21, and I'm reading from uh, 1 through 12. So on the first day of the week, very, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. So that was something traditionally that Jewish women would do, that as a body would be decomposing, they'd put more and more spices on it so they could visit the body without it uh, smelling that bad. So they're, they're going. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wandering, uh, sorry, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? What a great line. Why do you look for the living among the dead? You're looking for Jesus? No, he's, he's alive. He is not here. He is risen. Don't you remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Right? Jesus said this. But you were expecting Jesus to physically set up his kingdom, and he was going to do something far greater. Then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. The 11 disciples, it's usually 12, but Judas is, is gone. So you have the 11 disciples and other people that would have been there in the room. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, uh, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense, right? I mean, you, you, imagine that, right? Just imagine that. You've got someone who you, you think is going to change the world, and they get murdered, and you've seen their dead body. You've seen it in the tomb. That's what happens when somebody dies. They get buried. He's buried. He's dead. He's wrapped in hundreds of pounds of cloth, interwoven with spices, in a tomb underground. He's dead. What are you talking about? He's raised. You don't know what you're talking about. You guys were up all night. You're crazy. But Peter, however, got up and ran. And when we learned from John, Peter and John both got up and run to the tomb. And bending over, Peter saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. All right? So he's not even like, oh, yeah, clearly he, he rose again like he said he did. He's saying, what happened to the body of Jesus? Now, this is kind of odd. I, I wonder what happened here. He's not, he doesn't understand what's going on. Uh, in between, I'm skipping forward to chapter 36. Really cool story, if you've got time to read it, in Luke chapter 21 of Jesus encountering a couple disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's really, really interesting. Uh, but I'm picking back up in chapter 36, or verse 36. It says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself, the disciples, is back of the disciples in their little room, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. 
And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you doubt, uh, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, I can only imagine what that would have been like, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Right? Hey, he's been, you know, laying in the tomb for three days, you know, a few days, hungry. Uh, but at the same time, he's trying to prove, right, ghosts don't eat food. I'm going to physically consume something. I'm alive. I'm real. I'm here. And they gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Or you've got these disciples now who are, are in the presence of Jesus and they see him, they, they touch him, they watch him eat. And he's alive. He's not just a figment of my imagination. I'm not just dreaming this. He's alive and he appeared to them and he appeared to 40 others or 500 others, excuse me. He appears to all these people saying, I'm here, I'm real. And guess what? I can pay for your sins. And someday, I'm going to make all things new. And after that, Jesus then ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit descends upon them and they go forth preaching the gospel message of Jesus and who he is so we see restoration of those who believe. And I, I love this passage from Hebrews chapter 10. Um, I think it was our first week, maybe our second, I forget. When our first week that when I did communion here, I had us all read the whole chapter of Hebrews 10. And, uh, and I thought that was long. So I, I stopped doing that. But I love this passage and what it teaches us about the reality of what communion is. And I love this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Jesus says this, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So the narrator says here, first he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. And then he said, here am I. I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the old covenant, to establish the second, the new. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice and the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No more shedding of blood. Jesus did it. Day after day, a priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, when Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, a position of power and authority. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made Holy And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. Jeremiah 39, he's talking about here. 
I will put the laws in their hearts. I will write uh, them on their minds. And then he adds, and their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Expiation. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And that's when we get to this again, this idea of expiation. That when I put my faith in Christ, the high priest who now mediates for me, and he, my sins are gone. And I don't know what your sins are and the things that you struggle with. I want you to know that even in the midst of your sinning, you think, what does God think of me right now? Man, I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I want you to know that he cannot possibly love you more because of what Christ did for you. He can't. That you are sons and daughters in his eye. That your sins are as far as the east is from the west. You say, Brian, you don't, you don't know what I've done. It can't be forgi forgiven. Jesus said it as he's being murdered. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then he says, it's finished. It's done. Remove their sins. If, if we put our faith in him. And so we see the restoration of all things. And again, there's a lot of scripture tonight. Uh, I'm not going to apologize. Uh, a lot of scripture tonight. Uh, Romans 5, uh, 12, and then uh, 15 through 17 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all have sinned. But the gift is not like the trespass. It's grace now. We're under grace for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one's sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. I am made right in God's eyes. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And so we have this image going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that you're going you're to crush the head of that snake, but he's, he's going to cause some pain. He's going to cause the shedding of blood, but someday he's going to make things new. And right now we live in a time of grace. I don't deserve this. I deserve death. No longer. God has provided a way. Want to jump forward now into the revelation, the restoration of all things. This is Revelation chapter 5. Love this. He says, uh, John is, is writing here this revelation that, that Jesus gives to John. He says, then I saw, uh, let, me, let me preface this real quick. The book of Revelation, um, if you've ever read it or tried to read it, uh, can, can be a little tricky, can be a little difficult to read through sometimes. I don't know what's going on here. They said this. I have no idea what's going on here. And there's a little bit of that going on here. Um, and so that's why, so it's, it's an apocalyptic type of literature, okay? It's, it's a futuristic, uh, highly exaltive, um, just big picture. And, and the whole entire book is filled with similes and metaphors and likes. It was kind of like this, and man, that guy had a face. It was kind of like a lion, but then he talked kind of like a turtle. He doesn't, that's not accurate. He didn't say turtle ever in, in Revelation. Um, I don't know how to explain it. I'm going to see this thing, and I'm going to do my best to explain it, but I don't, have, I don't have words to even try to describe what I'm seeing. 
And so that's what happens a lot of times in the book of Revelation. So if you take the book of Revelation extremely literally, you're going to get really confused, right? Or else, because if you're, I used to do this. Okay, again, I grew up in the church and was weird like this. Um, I would draw, and I remember met a dad reading passages, and I remember drawing pictures of Jesus with seven eyes and seven horns, you know, coming out of his right? So don't do that, okay? It's an imagery of what's going on, okay? All right. Revelation chapter 5 says this. Then I saw on the right hand of him, that is God the Father, all right, been in Exodus, this is Yahweh, this is the creator of the universe, the Father. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What are these seals? Uh, this picture may be disturbing. It's an angel screaming. But in the bottom there is a scroll with seven seals. What are seals? All right, when we get, when you, this is what something that would happen that would be, and maybe you've done this. I've done this for fun before just because I wanted to be cool, where you melt some wax and you've got a, a, got a ring, a signet ring, I think is what it's called, and you, you put that seal on there, right? And so when a king would do that, you're sealed with the king's ring. So somebody's going through the forest and they've got to deliver this, this message from the king. It's not put into uh, effect until, it's, until that seal is broken. But he represents that. He represents the king. And so this, this scroll has seven seals on it, and yet it doesn't seem like anybody can open it. So this scroll can't be opened. Everything can't be made new and right and justified yet until somebody can open it, but nobody is found worthy. And so he says this, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, stop, stop your crying. <laughs> Do not weep. See, there is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has triumphed. This is Jesus he is able to open the seals. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb. I love that. He's just called the lion, but he sees a lamb. Again, the imagery is going all the way back to Exodus and the Passover. I see a lamb looking as if it had been slain, killed, dead, standing at the center of the throne. And encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, and the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went to look, sorry, he went and took the scroll right from the hand of God the Father, right? Right from the hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were uh, holding golden uh, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, singing, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, and they encircled the throne of the living creatures and of the elders, 
And in a loud voice, right? God likes it loud in heaven, just saying. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen, so be it. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's who Jesus is. That's who the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is. That going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that as human beings we have fallen into sin, that we deserve death. How is it possible that God could save anybody because he's holy and he's just, and the, and the holy just punishment for that is death? How can he save anybody? I know. I'll save them. I'll send my son. He'll put on flesh. He'll be a human fully, but he'll still be God fully. And he will suffer like they do. And he will die like they will. But he will rise again. And he will open the scroll. And someday he will make all things new. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time kind of talking and, and debunking um, some of the older, ancient kind of views on did Jesus actually die? Um, or, or was there something else that maybe happened, right? Was the body stolen? Uh, did the disciples steal it? the Romans steal it? Was he maybe just in a coma? And after, you know, sleeping for a few days, he, he got back up. Um, uh, we've talked about that in the past. If you've got questions about that, I'd encourage you to go online, go to hopecc.com, look at previous year's Easter sermons, and, and you can uh, hear some of that. But one of my favorite quotes on this um, is by a guy named Chuck Colson. And Chuck Colson was a, an evangelistic pastor um, uh, at the, during the Watergate. He actually got arrested, spent time in jail uh, because he was part of the Watergate scandal. And uh, this is what he has to say about the resurrection. He says this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years and never once denied it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison, and they would have not endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embodied 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. Are you telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. <laughs> There's validity here. Jesus rose from the dead, and so we get to cry, he is risen. There it is. All right, we'll do it again. He is, he is risen. All right, great. We get to say that. Hallelujah, right? We get to say that. So my question, again, for you, do you believe that? And if you don't, that's okay, right? Ask those questions. Pray to that God. Are, are you real? Is this really happening? Do you really die for me and my sins? Do you believe that today, that there is by Christ's blood, that, uh, do you believe today that it is by Christ's blood that you're healed? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but we can shed all the blood we want. We're not going to fix anything. Only God can do that. So now, let's, let's do that. Let's praise. Let's praise the one who is worthy of praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.
So uh, we're going to do this through communion, like we always do here at, at, at Lower Town. We've got a gluten-free option over here. And you might be visiting, you might be just checking us out. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to enjoy this with us. I want you to be able to look at these elements and look back to uh, Good Friday, look back to this, this uh, horrible experience that our Savior had of suffering and dying and shedding his blood. And so we have the bread, which represents the broken, crushed body of Christ. And yet we have the, the, the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness and remission of your sins and for my sins, all of them. Out of the camp, never to be remembered. It's gone. It's paid for because of what he has done. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that it's Easter. I thank you that you are alive, that your son is alive, that you have um, taken on flesh, that you lived and died and suffered like a lot of us do. You bore your cross, but you didn't stay in the grave. That you rose again perfectly, and so now we get to do the same thing. That we now symbolically get to remember what you did on the cross for us, that you forgave us of our sins and our trespasses, and so now we are in a right standing with you, not because of anything we've done, but by grace and grace alone and grace alone. So God, I pray that now you will just accept our praise and our worship because you are worthy of this, and I pray that we would just gladly reflect back to you now the glory that is due your name forever and ever. Amen.